You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 13, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Linda Stone, a former Apple and Microsoft executive who is widely recognized as a visionary thinker and thought leader on topics including the psychophysiology of our relationship with technology and how our relationship with technology can evolve. Linda coined the terms continuous partial attention and email apnea, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Newsweek, The Economist, and the Harvard Business Review, among many others. We're extremely pleased to welcome Linda Stone to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, I'm Robert Plotkin, the host of the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Today I'll be interviewing Linda Stone, a former high-tech executive who is also a writer and thought leader on our relationship to technology. Before we turn to the interview, I'd like you to try an exercise that's related to a topic that Linda brought to public attention many years ago. Take out your smartphone and find an app with messages that you feel drawn to read. It might be your email, text messages, Facebook, Instagram, whatever pulls you in the most. Now launch that app and look at the list of messages waiting for you. Now pause for a moment. And now turn your attention to your breath. Did you stop breathing? If so, then you've just experienced what Linda Stone has described as email apnea, the cessation of breathing while reading email. Although, of course, it can apply to stopping breathing while engaging with any kind of messages or app. Needless to say, since breathing is essential to living, unintentionally holding our breath so often just isn't good for our health. Yet it's easy for this to become a habit, especially because it occurs unintentionally and even without our being aware of it most of the time. One thing you can try to counter email apnea is to turn your attention to your breath right before you launch a messaging app, right after you launch it, and then periodically while you're messaging. To help you remember to do this, you might try to set a bell to go off periodically. There's many different timer apps with bells available to do this for you. If you set your intention to turn your attention to your breath whenever you hear the bell, you'll be more likely to notice your breathing when you hear the bell. And in turn, you'll be more likely to start breathing again if you notice that your breathing has stopped. We hope you enjoyed today's tip for noticing and starting to reverse email apnea, and that you'll enjoy the upcoming interview with Linda Stone about the past, present, and future of our relationship to technology. Hi, Linda, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, Robert. Thanks so much for inviting me to join you today. You're welcome. Really looking forward to speaking to you in part because you've been in the technology world for a long time, a few decades. You've been an executive at Apple in the 1980s and Microsoft in the 1990s through the beginning of the new millennium. And I'm curious to know how and why did your attention begin to shift from being inside the technology development world to the broader problem of human attention and how technology keeps us so distracted all the time? That's a great question. And 
for me, the, the shift happened because I was noticing what was happening all around me at work. And I was also adjunct faculty at NYU in the interactive telecommunications program and was noticing what was happening to my students there. And in most of these cases, what I was seeing was that people were feeling increasingly stressed, increasingly uh, burned out, exhausted, um, not present, not the, the quality of connection was so different. And particularly at NYU in the mid nineties, uh, when I was adjunct faculty there, what I was seeing with the students was that in those days, they'd have multiple devices. They'd have the pager, the phone, uh, five different, uh, windows tiled on their computer. That doesn't seem unusual today, but understand that at, at the time that I was noticing this, which was around 1995, I'd be at work at Microsoft sitting at my desk. And, and if we had more than, you know, if we had more than one thing going on, we had two screens, one for email, one for Excel or Word or whatever productivity software we were using. And this was so different from the experience I had at NYU, where these kids who were 10 to 15 years younger than my peers at Microsoft had multiple screens opened, multiple devices on, and they were always tuning into those devices. And I thought, what is happening here? And people were talking about multitasking, but I thought this is way beyond multitasking. Multitasking is, you know, when I, when I stir soup on the stove and talk on the phone or, uh, or listen to a friend tell me about their day. Multitasking is not talking on the phone while answering emails and monitoring a Twitter stream and so forth. There were, there were just so many things going on and it, it seemed to have a, a more intense effect on people to be doing all these things than simple multitasking. Now, I just want to step back because it's been this new way for so long now that many people may not remember or may not have ever known a different way. You said 1995, so that means anyone who's 22 years old now or younger wasn't even alive at that point and has only lived in the new world. So, you know, just for people who weren't in the technology world at the time, uh, you're saying that it used to be the fact that if you were at Apple or Microsoft or in the high-tech world, you were using computers to unitask. Correct. Absolutely correct. Uh, when, when I first started on computers, it was a green or an amber screen, and it was text. And, uh, and then from there, with, uh, with the introduction of the uh, Macintosh, it was a graphical user interface, and ultimately we had uh, Windows. We had more and more that we could do on a single screen, and then we had more portability for all of these screens. So technology has become increasingly ubiquitous as it's become easier to use and more portable. And and I you know I, I agree with you that that this that this saturation, this, this world where we're just saturated with technology is for some people, the only way that they've ever known it, unless they're 
families and their peers have created a set of norms that would offer them time and space away from technology, more time outside, more time doing physical activity where you're away from technology. Otherwise, screens are everywhere. And I wonder if you could elaborate on the difference between what you called earlier simple multitasking and the kind of multitasking people are engaged in now. Because I can imagine it seeming to people like uh, they're all the same, that we've always multitasked, we've always, as you said, cooked and been on the phone, and that maybe what we have now is a bit more extreme, but fundamentally the same. Could you talk a little bit about why they're very different? Of course. So with simple multitasking, we're doing one activity that requires some level of cognition and one activity that's more routine or automatic. So stirring the soup, for example, might be more automatic, whereas writing an email might require more from us cognitively. We have to think through what we want that email to say. With continuous partial attention or complex multitasking, what we're doing is more than one activity that requires cognition. So we might be driving and talking on the phone. We might be answering an email and playing words with friends or doing uh, something that requires more of us than, uh, than eating a sandwich, for example. And when we're using continuous partial attention versus simple multitasking, our body goes into a state of fight or flight. With simple multitasking, there's less of a load, there's less stress on your system. But with continuous partial attention or complex multitasking, we start moving into this state of fight or flight. And in this state of fight or flight, our body acts with a stress response. Um, neuroscientists call it an upregulated sympathetic response. So our liver dumps glucose and cholesterol, our cortisol levels go up, nitric oxide balance is thrown off, and nitric oxide is in, implicated in everything from inflammation to diabetes risk, depression, all kinds of things. It's, it's as if our body is preparing to run from a tiger, only that tiger is 50 emails, and, and that's the threat. And we're sitting in the swamp, meanwhile, of neurochemicals, of all the resources that our body would need to run. So that's the difference between simple and complex multitasking. And what would you say to someone who either says, I feel good when I'm doing this, or regardless of how I feel, I feel more productive when I'm engaged in complex multitasking? Or, or continuous partial attention. Yes. <laughs> say, I would say, you know, what is productivity to you? Um, do you feel more productive when you feel like you're a machine um, bearing down on a to-do list? Or do you feel more productive when you, you are a better human, when you are engaged to a degree where there's a new insight, where you come up with a simpler way to do something or a more creative way to market a product or a more, more interesting way to design 
something that that there's a way that we may feel when we're busy as if we're getting more done but in a sense we're there's a cost with that and the the cost is that we're more stressed we're more impulsive and we're ticking down a list we're not using the best qualities that we have as human beings which are our insight our ability to reflect our sense of presence which is where we open to all kinds of new ideas and new insights i'm curious um are you implying that um it's harder or less likely that people will be creative insightful in a deep way when they're engaged in continual or continuous partial attention and it, if that's true it seems like it has some really serious implications, not just because of the importance of insight and creativity generally, but because so many of the people who are enmeshed in computer technology, people who are programmers or engineers or designers, need to be exhibiting insight and creativity, and they're the ones who are the most engaged with technology all the time. I've worked with a lot of programmers um, in my life, and many of them really prefer to be in a closed office in a quiet space. If they're not in a closed office, they'll put on a headset. They want to be unitasking in order to solve a problem. They want to be able to give full focus to, uh, to whatever it is they're, they're attempting to do. So, so I think in the, in the case of programmers, you'd be hard pressed to find a programmer who says that they do their best work using continuous partial attention. I, I wonder if you're familiar with uh, Christopher, Christopher Chabri and Dan Simon's work on inattentional blindness, or if you've ever seen the gorilla video. Yes, yes, certainly. I'm not sure how many people listening have seen it, but maybe you can describe this very famous experiment. So, so, so Chabri and Simon's talk about something that they call inattentional blindness. And the gorilla video, which is readily available on YouTube, is is well worth watching. There's a there's a group of people on the on the screen in the video. Some dressed in black, some dressed in white, and you're asked as a person watching the video to count the number of times the the people in the video toss the ball to one another. And what Shabri and Simons found were that people watching the video were so focused on counting the number of times that ball was passed and they would often arrive at the correct number, but they would miss that in the middle of the video, in plain view, a person in a gorilla suit would stop in the middle of the video, beat its chest and walk off screen. So in the first viewing of the video, when people were focused on counting the number of ball tosses, they got the number of ball tosses and missed the gorilla. And on the second watch, when they were not focused on those ball tosses and blocking everything else out, they noticed the gorilla. So when we are so vigilantly focused on answering 100 emails or on checking off everything on our to-do list, we're actually narrowing our vision. We're narrowing our ability to have ideas or insights, and we're losing our present moment. And in that stressed and vigilant 
state, um, we we're also sacrificing our our ability to be our 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 opportunity to be to be lucky to see things that are are right there for us in our field of view that might offer us a new opportunity because we're so focused on what we think the world should look like and what we want to accomplish. I wonder if you could talk about uh, what you described as the difference between time management and attention management. It strikes me as very relevant to what you just said. I think everyone's familiar with various time management systems, getting things done and so forth that encourage you to create to-do lists of different kinds or schedule your tasks and focus on getting tasks done as efficiently as possible. What What's the problem with that? And I wonder if you do see it as related to what we just talked about, uh, being focused on getting a lot of things done as quickly as possible. And why do you, why do you talk about attention management as an alternative? When, when we are focused on managing our time, we're focused on tasks. And when we're focused on managing our attention, it, it goes broader than tasks. We're managing our sense of presence. We're managing our emotional state, which gives us a lot more opportunity in any given moment. I, uh, a number of years ago, I interviewed people and asked them the question, do you manage your time or do you manage your attention? And in, in the responses, it turned out that people who worked in clerical jobs or office jobs often talked about managing their time, how many minutes they did this, how many minutes they did that, how long their to-do list was, uh, how they often felt like they could never tick off everything on their to-do list. They just had to keep adding to it. And I, I called it the never-ending list. How do, we, how do we deal with this never-ending list that we're now creating for ourselves and we never stop and celebrate when we get something done? So people reported much higher levels of burnout. When I talked to people who were artists or surgeons or programmers or people who were involved in any aspect of a creative process, they talked about managing their attention or managing both their time and their attention. One of the surgeons that I talked to said that when he taught residents, he would, he would tell them to go slow in order to go fast, that when the students would go in and they would be so focused on the clock, they would often go so fast stitching something up that there would be an error and it would end up almost costing someone's life if they couldn't get a repair done in the time that they had. In some cases, you have only so much time to do certain stitching or certain repairs. And when they would go slowly and stay present and focused, they would be able to accomplish much more because any given moment was all about what needed to be done just in that moment. They weren't focused on the future and draining part of their time into the future. Artists talked about this in the same way. They talked about how important it was for them to manage their attention in order to execute the things that they wanted to do in the studio. So is attention management about staying focused in the present? While you were talking, I was going to say or ask, 
um, what would attention management even look like? Uh, the idea of time management, task management, that kind, certain kind of efficiency has been so ingrained in us. At first, it seems hard to even imagine what some other kind of attention would look like. So you've said slowing down, pay, paying full attention to what you're doing in the moment. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and perhaps other ways in which people could shift towards a focus on attention management. When when William James first uh, began to speak about attention in the in the 1890s, I think, he defined attention both as what you choose to focus on and what you choose to exclude from your focus. In today's definition, in most dictionaries, attention is defined as what you choose to focus on. And we've dropped the part about what gets excluded. And in both cases, we need to make very active choices. So there are a number of things that, that we can do to manage our attention. Bill Powers, who wrote the book Hamlet's Blackberry and is a wonderful thinker on this topic, talks about how we can manage both time and space. And Tiffany Schlein, who you've interviewed in the past, also talks about this management of time where, uh, where both of them plan to have a digital Sabbath every weekend in their home and claim that it affects both their sense of weekend and their connection with family members, as well as how they enter a new week, that they go in in a, in a more wakeful, rested state. It's, it's healing to have that wakeful rest that you have with a digital Sabbath. I mentioned that Bill also talks about space. Can you define spaces in your home and in your life that are disconnected zones. Bill calls them Walden zones. And I have a friend in uh, Ipswich, Massachusetts, who when I visited her, it was it was really interesting. There were certain rooms in the house where people were not allowed to bring in a cell phone or have a computer. Their, their kitchen, for example, which for a lot of us, there's a computer, there are phones, people are are cooking, preparing food, doing all kinds of things, talking to each other while they're working on these things. Well, in her home, people had to drop their phones and computers outside the kitchen. So they actually were talking to each other when they were in the kitchen and they were focused on whatever it was they were doing in the kitchen. There were rooms in the house that were considered to be, as Bill would call them, these Walden zones. If you're, uh, if you're in um, a, a, having one of those moments at your desk where you're noticing that you're starting to feel amped up and that that amped up feeling usually comes along with this, I can't get it all done. I'm, you know, what am I going to do? I've still got to do X, Y, Z. I need to leave soon. When you start noticing that kind of thinking in your mind, one of the things that you can do is a simple breath technique where you're doing a longer exhale, an exhale that's two times longer than your inhale and you're breathing in and out through your nose. And that sometimes can end up bringing you, uh, bringing you back into a more parasympathetic or more relaxed state so that you can come back into the present moment. There's, there's a tremendous amount of research on nature. Uh, there's both um, the wonderful book, Last Child in the Woods, but also uh, the, 
research that Mark Berman's done on taking a walk in nature and how much more powerful and restorative that is than taking a walk in an urban setting. So nature is also a great healer. And, and then I found that certain types of exercise are actually more effective than other types of exercise. So we, we tend, we have tended toward a type of cardio exercise that, that amps up our nervous system more, but it turns out that music and certain types of dance, particularly ballroom dance can be very effective at helping us regulate the nervous system and bring our bodies back to a point where we're more able to be focused and present in whatever we do. And of course, yoga, meditation, these are things that, um, that we're all drawn toward. And, and I think that we're drawn toward these activities today in part because we have a craving for a spiritual homeostasis in the same way that we, uh, that our bodies automatically work toward a physical homeostasis. I really appreciate it. You've given a mix of things we can affirmatively do or turn to, dance, yoga, focus on our breathing, uh, and things that we can uh, pay attention to, excluding certain times when we don't use devices or, or places. The excluding uh, recommendation is an interesting one. I'm thinking in our culture here, it's one you could almost define it by expansion, uh, ever never-ending inclusion of more and more. We define the success of our economy in terms of growth. We often define the the power and success of technology in, in terms of the additional things it can do, the elimination of limits or boundaries. And I certainly find in myself some at least apprehension about the idea of imposing limits. And I wonder what you can say about this, this aspect, maybe not of people inherently, but certainly of our culture, to see growth and expansion and elimination of limits as somehow the goal and inherently good and imposition of limits as something to be avoided or as a sign of failure or regression? So wonderful question. So, so I really believe that, that we as, as human beings are, are all about expansion and dreaming and, and, and having this strong urge to create. And at the same time, there are small steps that we can take that help us with managing our attention and managing exclusion in a positive way. So one of the things that I do is whenever I make a to-do list, I make the long, never-ending list, and then I grab another piece of paper and I make a list of three to five things that I'm actually going to focus on. So I dump everything out of my head that I think needs to get done, but then I list the things that are going to matter most and that I feel most merit uh, immediate uh, focus, immediate attention. And with that, when I finish that short list, I, you know, I have this sense of celebration. I take a break and then I look at the longer list. And in some cases, some of the things on the longer list 
seem to have been handled. They, you know, there's, there, there are things that have been done. So, so we tend to think that everything requires us to take an active and projective role when in some cases having focus, knowing what's there, but allowing our minds to, to really give ourselves to the things that we're choosing as most important for that moment creates a space of receptivity where some things resolve on their own. It's a really great suggestion. It, it, I hear it as a way of not seeing the expansion and the limits as opposed to each other, but a way to incorporate both of them into a whole. Yes. I wonder, we've been talking a lot about the individual and things that a person can do to impose limits, be more focused, perhaps be less stressed, be more productive and creative. I'd like to turn to how people relate to each other. Uh, I noticed that you had at one point asked the question, are social networks continuous partial friendships? <laughs> I really like that. Uh, to me, it tied the idea of individual continuous partial attention to the impact of that or the way in which it can manifest itself in how we interact with and relate to each other. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how this kind of fractured way of thinking and relating plays out online and, and what its impacts are and whether you have any suggestions for moving past that. Well, you know, very personally, one of the things that I like about Twitter is that it doesn't miss me if I take two weeks off. It just doesn't miss me. Whereas with Facebook, which, you know, I'm not active on Facebook, but with Facebook, what I notice is people feel compelled to be constantly checking in. And what I like about any kind of social network is that there is an awareness of a larger community. What concerns me is that most social networks do not function the way that good social networkers function. So if we think about what social networking was before technology and before we used uh, Facebook or Twitter or any of these social networks, social networking was more about a real connection between people and a sense of mutuality, mutual benefit in having that connection. And these networks weren't necessarily transparent. So they weren't about people grandstanding or feeling used or, you know, people had I think a slightly greater sense of what was a genuine connection and, and what was a connection that was potentially motivated by, by things other than, than care and concern. And what we have, what we have now is, is are these social networks that do well, what machines do well. And of course now all of this is being complicated by, by bots and by, uh, by ways that, technology can end up taking advantage of and manipulating people. So, so social networks in general, to me, are kind of a mixed bag. On the, on the one hand, you have this level of awareness that you're not alone. And on the other hand, when you dive too deeply into that as your world, 
you can lose a sense of the world that really matters, which is the physical embodied world around you and the people and the connections that are right there in your daily life. You're raising an interesting point. If I'm hearing you correctly, when you said you like Twitter for one reason, like Facebook less for another reason, it seems to run counter to what I think of as a pretty common idea that these networks are just media. You know, each one is just a blank slate kind of medium that people will use however they want. And that if someone is using Facebook in a way that's not healthy for their relationships, that's because of them. And it's not Facebook that's somehow doing that. I hear, and I may be misunderstanding you, to be saying that there's something about how these networks are designed, which can at least influence how people relate on them and how they interact on them. Is that true? And could you talk a little bit about that? I believe that that's absolutely true, that that we have we have learned so much about how the brain works and what how influence works how manipulation works that in many ways the social networks of today are designed in a way to to hook us and to to keep us engaged whether whether we're necessarily whether we're really benefiting in positive ways or not so I don't I think there is personal choice involved but I think it's a slippery slope from personal choice to being manipulated. So in light of that I wonder if you could put on two different hats one is that of a user of social networking and let us know if you have any suggestions for what we can do to to use social networks in a way that advances our own goals and who we want to be. And as someone who's a former high-tech executive, if, do you have any ideas about how it would be better to design social networks? So, so on, the, on the user side, one of my, one of my favorite examples is of a, of a family I know that, that really, where the, where the children are taught to really monitor their time online. Uh, in, in one case, a 10-year-old is given two hours a week online and there's a timer on the computer. She can see it counting down over the course of the week. And she has said to me, you know, if it's Wednesday and I see that I have only 45 minutes left, I close that really fast. But she, she is learning from her parents who also model for her. They don't use phones when they're at meals. They put the technology away. They spend a lot of time outdoors, they have really made a commitment to keeping the screens in their place, in time and space, in their home. And that can make a difference also with, with social media, that when, when we have a spare moment, whether it's sitting in a restaurant waiting for someone or waiting for an elevator, and the first thing we do is check Twitter or check Facebook, we have moved away from the moment and we've moved into this other space. So we've lost the opportunity to speak with the person standing next to us waiting for the elevator. We've lost the opportunity to notice what the weather is outside, 
we've lost the opportunity to notice that there was new carpeting installed or that one elevator seems consistently slower than another. And we've made a choice instead to surrender to a kind of a kind of haze that isn't necessarily serving us when we're more intentional about, okay, I'm going to take 20 minutes, jump on Facebook, see what's going on with friends. Oh, I'm noticing that so-and-so was just diagnosed with X and may need food brought to their home. Okay. Check out or so-and-so is on a trip and they're in Germany maybe they want to try going to x restaurant or visiting y check out there the the way that we engage with social media now is we almost use it to fill every space and when we use it to fill every space we have no space for for reflection and for real experience that's some great suggestions for people and and families uh, for managing their time and attention, social media. And what about if you were the social media czar? <laughs> could, what would you do to be redesigning social networks so they could serve human goals better? Well, for for six and a half of the eight and a half years that I was at Microsoft, I I started and then ran a group that did very early experiments and studies with social media in the, you know, from... 1994 to, to 2000. And, and one of the things that we did was we would, we would test different features for levels of trust and connection uh, that would be created. So I think if I were, if I were looking at and, and designing social media today, it's a, boy, that's a tough, tough question because on the one hand, the company is is always going to be very oriented toward profitability. Why are there so many ads on Facebook? Why are you tracked to the degree that you're tracked so that they can target the ads so perfectly um, for you? It it all has to do with profitability. And on the other hand, there are there are benefits to Facebook. You've got this wonderful, rich set of photos and a sense of uh, of your friends and relationships that you know that you may not be able to experience day to day because of where you live or 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 how you live. So so it's a it's a big question. I think that I think that I would look very specifically at what what were we trying to do with a social network? Was it going to make connections inside a company more effective for things like? document sharing or working on a particular project was it uh was it going to were the social networks going to serve to um to make it easier for me to connect to my family i think one of the things that we have to some degree is the with facebook is the me and everyone else network that that there are so many connections there that that are authentic, but there are also so many connections there that are almost out of obligation. Gee, someone wants to connect to me. I don't necessarily want to connect to them, but uh, you know, what are my, what are my options since I also don't want to offend them? So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here. I don't think that I have a, 
specific answer because it's a it's a boil the ocean kind of a question. I think it really depends on exactly what uh, what are you hoping to do? What are you what is success uh, with a particular social network? Is it connecting all the people who live in a certain condominium building or who are part of a cohort of a class or connecting a family? Or is it that, you know, somebody wants to have a, a larger presence than their immediate friends? So it, it's going to really depend on what it is that that you're after. I mean, what I hear you saying from both sides, from the user side and the designer side, is there's some need for people to be clear about what their own intention is, whether it's in using the technology or designing it. And when people don't have that clarity of intention and stay focused on it and and revisit it from time to time, there can be a tendency almost for the technology to pull us along uh, rather than, than the other way. I wonder if you could talk, if we can shift to the, that bigger picture of, you know, where are we heading with technology as as people or as a, a society, uh, there there are ways in which, um, as you said, although there certainly is individual choice, there are ways in which technology can pull us uh, in certain directions, which may or may not be where we want to go. Uh, where are we headed, and and what can we do to steer the ship better? Well, you, you've summed you've summed up the issues really beautifully, Robert. The one of the things that's on my mind very often these days is sense of agency and how often we surrender our our sense of agency to to machines. The machine knows better. It must be you know it must be right. It doesn't. It's not complicated by human emotion, and we surrender to the machine, whether it's to artificial intelligence or to how a machine works and we learn to operate the way the machine wants us to operate versus managing and holding to our own sense of agency, our own sense of empowerment and our own sense of intention and what it is we would choose moment to moment and day to day in terms of what, how we would define success. So, so many of us fall into this. I think it's sort of a, a false sense of productivity, which is this idea that man as machine is, is somehow better than, than human as human. And, and in, uh, and in doing that, we, we lose what is unique about us as humans. So, so for starters, I would say, I would say intention and sense of agency, and you 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 referred to that. It's it's extremely extremely important as we as we move forward with you know navigating our relationship with technology. I wonder if you can give some particular examples. I mean, I think of a very trivial one, uh, which is uh, that we, there, people often joke that we have a tendency to do things like follow a GPS into the river, if that's where it points us when we're driving. This tendency to trust the machine, follow it blindly, and assume that it knows what it's doing. Uh, but as I said, that's a that's a trivial example. I wonder if you could give some other examples that may be more weighty and, and uh, what we 
could be doing about them? Well, I mean, one of one of the things that that I've been looking at lately is uh, is the work of Kathy O'Neill and how algorithms can often incorporate a tremendous amount of bias that we tend to think of machines as being objective when in actuality machines are, uh, you know, have the, have encoded in them the ethics of whoever developed them. It was so interesting to be at both Apple and Microsoft and now to be affiliated with the media lab and to, and to see how clearly the personality, the values and the ethics of whoever is creating the machine and developing the algorithms are encoded from the bottom up in everything that's done. So whether, whether that has to do with, uh, Kathy O'Neill gives wonderful examples in her Ted talk, which is online about, uh, issues like recidivism where, um, where an algorithm might be tuned to indicate that that certain races would be more likely to uh, to reoffend in terms of crime rather than other races where racial bias is built right in. There are uh, there are examples in in artificial intelligence. Well, in artificial intelligence, we have also this you know these different ways of looking at at how AIs can be developed. Are you, are you developing the AI in a way where the human is turning over agency and trust to the machine? Or are you developing the AI in a way where the human maintains a sense of agency and the machine assists the human? And again, these are, these are all large philosophical and ethical considerations that there, you know, there is no stated answer to any of this Today, it's a matter of being very aware, very intentional, and having these really important conversations as important technologies are developed and disseminated and tuning into where is the bias? How can we do a, a data integrity check or, a, or, a, or an audit of the algorithms to make sure that, that we are, in fact, um, removing bias to as great a degree as we can. Yeah, and I wonder what you would say to people who aren't programmers or engineers. My guess is that many of those people have no awareness of this fact uh, that algorithms have biases in them. Uh, they might just assume that something that's been designed that's run by a computer must be objective, whether it's accurate or inaccurate. Is a different story, but they might not really have any awareness that it could actually be biased in the way that a human is. Yes, I mean we do we do tend to think of machines as being objective and at the heart of it. I mean when we start when we start uh, using self driving cars, it's important for us to be aware that somebody programmed that car to make a decision as to what to do in the case of an unavoidable accident or <laughs> is the car going to sacrifice the occupant of the car or the pedestrians who you know have ended up fallen in the road how how are those decisions going to be made those decisions are baked into algorithms i mean right these are the things i remember tackling in 
introductory philosophy class in college, uh, the, the hundred people in front of you versus the train on the side or whatever it was. And these were all meant to pose tricky ethical questions for people. And as you said, now the decision may be in the hands of, of the car. I, this might be Kathy O'Neill. I'm not sure, but I read recently an article by a programmer who was a black woman about facial recognition software, and it was prompted by her when she first realized that the latest facial recognition software couldn't recognize her face because of how it was programmed. It had either been trained or designed based on white faces. Correct. Uh, Google initially had issues with facial recognition software because the software was initially racist. And since then, um, has moved to correct uh, those issues. Yes. What, if anything, and there may not be any answer, what, if anything, can the, quote, average person do in the face of this? Is there any way to even for, at least protect oneself against biases or being hooked into the presumption that the computer knows what it's doing? Stay aware keep asking questions, and know that machines are not objective. We, we tend to trust, in some cases, machines over humans. If the machine says X, that must be the case because they're tracking and recording everything. In some cases, it's really important to just keep asking the questions. And in the technology community, and the various industries using technology in, in different ways, it's critically important to keep asking the questions, to keep facing the issues that are going to be emerging more and more as, as technology becomes even more ubiquitous. It's very helpful, and it's related to another topic that you've thought and written and about a lot and, and promoted, which is what you call the essential self, as opposed to what's, I think, more widely known still, the quantified self, the ways in which people for, I think, at least last five years, maybe 10, have been using things like Fitbit, you know, to track their exercise and sleep and physiologic data uh, in a highly quantified way, uh, where there's a machine gathering the data and people take it and trust it and analyze it. I wonder if you could explain what you see as the risks or things we should be on the lookout for in the quantified self, in part because so many people love it and claim a lot of benefits from it. Uh, you know, What do you think the, the ups and downsides are of it? And could you explain to people what you mean by the essential self as an alternative? Thank you. So, so with the quantified self movement and and there is certainly there are so many examples of ways that people have benefited from quantified self technology there there are also ways in which quantified self technology doesn't necessarily answer all needs so in the case of quantified self technology what you have is um what i would call the intelligent machine that knows the standardized norms, a person should walk this much, a person should have this uh, heart rate, a person 
should be this way and that way. And so the machine holds that information, then dictates to the cognitive or thinking mind of the person using the technology. And, and that thinking mind then dictates to the body, behave this way, do this, you failed, you succeeded. So everything is based on the wise machine. So in that model, agency, our agency, is given to the wise machine. And what if, for example, the machine wasn't accurately tracking distance, but we really wanted to walk a certain distance, and the machine was malfunctioning in some way, not tracking the distance, and we stopped paying attention to how our body felt, and we were marching to whatever we felt the machine was telling us we needed to do to be healthy. So the model for thinking about essential self starts with the wise body and with this sense of embodiment and feeling the wise body and then using the helpful machine to support the wise body. In, in the essential self model, the user maintains agency and the goal is this sense of embodiment, this sense of presence, this sense of being able to self-regulate. So if you think about an example of this in terms of software and hardware designed to help you with your breathing, in the quantified self-model, you might have an app on your smartphone that is telling you exactly when to inhale and when to exhale. So you might be following a little ball on a screen that's showing the peaks and valleys of the inhales and the exhales. And I found personally when I've used software like that, that I might feel a little bit better while I'm using the software. But as soon as I put it down, I revert right back to another pattern. It's almost like having a ventilator or something breathe me from the outside. Whereas in the essential self model, you might have a device that sits on your belly and that in some cases, well, that's like a, that's like a little pet sitting on your belly that is capable through uh, sensors and AI of syncing up with your breathing, slowing its breathing down in order to provide options, again, meeting your body where it is and syncing up with your breathing, and then, again, providing other options with slower breath. So you're having the experience in a very embodied way, in a way that's getting you out of your head, that's getting your focus into your body and into a sense of feeling, and feeling throughout your body what different types of breathing can, what that experience is. And further, it's meeting you where you are. So instead of saying where you are is wrong, which is what a lot of quantified self-technology might say, where you are is wrong, your heart rate should be here. Your number of steps should be here. With essential self-technology, you're met where you are and you're given options to have that experience. And again, philosophically, the 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 primary piece of that is holding on to a sense of agency, that the agency isn't surrendered to the machine.
It's interesting. It, it, you've made clear that in the essential self, there is still a pretty significant role for technology. It's just a very different role than in the quantified self. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that one is better or worse. There's a, there's a, there's a place for all kinds of technologies. I get a little concerned when I see us moving toward consumer health technologies where we surrender agency to the machine because, you know, medical sociologists will tell you that sense of control and sense of agency is crucial for health. So the last thing we want to do is surrender to a machine to tell us that we have a bad body or, a, or, or we're malfunctioning. We want to build on our strengths. We want to meet ourselves where we are and build on our strengths. Yeah, I'm hearing from you and. In- I think all of the topics we've talked about, a real focus on our own agency, our own intention, setting it, being aware of it, and then our own perception of our body and trusting and honoring and following it, uh, and then using technology as appropriate in the service of all of those things. That's right. Great sum up. Well, great. Uh, It's been really great talking to you. I really enjoyed it and getting an an overview of your really long history with technology and getting up to date and up to speed on everything you're doing now with the essential self and everything else. Thank you so much for, uh, for the opportunity to chat with you today, Robert. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Linda Stone, an expert on technology trends and their implications, and a visionary thinker on the psychophysiology of our relationship with technology and how our relationship with technology can evolve. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes, and check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with Carl Honoré, whose book, In Praise of Slow, jump-started the slowness movement that is challenging the cult of speed.